Welcome back to the David Watson podcast. And today I'm talking to Caroline. And originally Caroline and I were going to talk about the menopause, but we actually put the world to rights on many, many things. I really enjoyed talking to her. I love guests that can just talk. I really hope you enjoy this episode. And as always, please do like, subscribe and comment. It always helps. But most of all, just thank you for listening. One. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the David Watson podcast. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Excellent. I know, I know that suddenly came across as really professional, didn't it? <laughs> it did. I've just been for a, a cold water swim in the ladies' pond on Hampstead Heath, and it just always it's a great way to start the day. It is. Yeah, it is. I am. Um, I'm fortunate. I have a little gym set up in my back garden, and so I, I spend like most mornings after I've walked the dog uh, listening to the birds in the garden before I turn some drum and bass on to work out. But in the winter, when it's like minus whatever, it, it does get you fired up, gets you going. Definitely. I'm, I'm a big um, fan of listening to the birds. Are you? Mm. Have you always done that? Yeah, yeah. I've always, um, even though I actually did live in London for a bit, um, I've always been a country boy at heart. It's, I grew up in the country, so yeah, I think it's it's hardwired, isn't it? <laughs> it is. There, there, there's something. Um, I don't know. I think it's it's one of those things that you notice when you're in the maybe not in the country, and I think it can be anywhere because you know London actually has a lot more nature than people realise. But you are either aware that you're sharing a space, or you're not. Definitely. And I, I think uh, it's, that's a very interesting place to start. I, I'm writing a book, actually, about bird watching and how bird watching saved me, which we can talk about in lots of ways. But for me, it was it was an amazing touchstone for anxiety during menopause yeah. um, when I sort of got surges of anxiety. Um, and I've said this before, but my my everyday yoga didn't work. And watching the birds, or, or more importantly, actually immersing yourself in in the life of birds and listening, really saved you know saved me in lots of ways. And I realised that that journey starts as soon as you step outside of the front door. And in fact, for many people, the, the communication with the birds is is even earlier than that when you're sitting in your house. And you know, my granny lived till she was 104 and a half, and watching the birds every day on her balcony was an important part of every day for her. You know, I, birds I, have a lot of lot of messages. <laughs> it, no, it, it's funny you saying that because um, I used to teach meditation many many years ago, and um, and and I predominantly stuck with guided meditations and things like that, um, as I feel I've always felt they're a good way of getting somebody into something and then let someone else take over from there. Um, but one of the things I do I would ask people to do is to sit in an open space, their garden if they're lucky enough to have one and see if you can listen for birds. And once you're kind of in that nice quiet space and you're listening to see what you can hear, you get to hear whether they're on your left, your right, in front or behind you. But you also start picking up the different species of birds and how they're talking to each other. Mm, And before you know it, they're like, it's a right soap opera of what's going on. (laughs) And there's this constant chatter back and forth, which you don't, if you're, when you sit and take the time to listen to it, you realise just how much is going on in their world. And like I said, is if you if you just give it some time, you also start to realise how separated you can be from it. 
Absolutely. And, and I think um, feeling into that surround space as well is something which we are fast losing the art of doing. You know, and when you were talking about leaving the house and connecting with nature, you know, something I have to kind of really remind myself not to do is to leave the house, continue to communicate via my phone, you know, maybe answering some messages as I walk along the road, <clears throat> doing sending a few messages, whatever. And um, and it's very easy to do that, <clears throat> not to connect with nature. Excuse me. But like you're saying, <clears throat> I haven't talked enough this morning. <laughs> yeah, um, going down to the um, you know to the pond at Hampstead Heath. Um, and, and get getting in there doing that natural you know because people kind of i think one of the things that we get caught up in that can be a bit problematic in modern life is we go down this sort of road of hashtags and buzzwords which detach from actually what its purpose is so if you if you look at the, yeah. the the legacy or the history of swimming at Hampstead heath i think it goes back two or three hundred years in sort of recorded Definitely. history yeah you know. they were built as victorian or created as Victorian bathing ponds, I think. It's yeah. the diversion of the River Fleet into the pond system. And some of them are stock ponds and some of them are swimming ponds and some of them are bathing ponds. And I, I think it goes back that far. I haven't really read its history. Um, mm. But there's a good there's a good Netflix documentary and I've got a book actually which I'm sort of part way through reading about swimming at the ponds. This, and there's a reason they did that. that. There was a connection that they were much more aware of, that they realised they were losing with the industrialisation of London. Definitely. I, I think, obviously, something that fascinates me, because I'm, I'm, I'm a homeopath, and um, we, we, you know, we take the, when we take the case of a client, we're looking at the mental, emotional, the physical, which, you know, lots of people know about the physical. They come in, they've got an itch, or they've got an itis, or they've got a named disease. And as homeopaths, we want to know uh, how that is for you and who you are that has that disease as much as anything else. So to, sort of to give an example, you know, the doctor isn't particularly concerned whether rheumatism is on the right or the left. But for us, yeah. it's on the right-hand side of the body. We might be looking at the liver and because the liver is on the right side of the body. And is that driving some aspect of the pathology as an instance? And so one of the things that we are listening for as well is what we call general symptoms. So we've got mental, emotional, we've got physical. But the general symptoms are when things affect you maybe seasonally or on one side of the body or if you eat a certain food or, I don't know, a certain time of the cycle, if it's a woman, you know, you might yeah. say, well, well, that happens before your period or after your period. What does that indicate to the prescriber? And so when we go back to the Victorian times, the pre, basically the pre-Freudian times, people were much more aware of their constitution and they called it taking a constitutional, you know, for a walk. They, everybody, it, and temperance was something that they were more aware of. So they were more aware of if you ate a bad diet or if you drank too much, it, it resulted in this sort of behaviour. And then Freud came along and we got much more involved in the mental, emotional side of things. And we kind of tended to neglect, you know, having fresh air, having sunshine, taking a swim, communicating with nature. And, and, and I think we're coming back full circle to recognising that those things are just as important as, as mental health. And in fact, they drive mental health. So there's a few apps coming out which integrate, you know, not just doing mindfulness, doing meditation, 
um, but also integrate that with some kind of outdoor activity or and I'm thinking of there's an app called the Mindful app that um, I've done some work with it with them on actually on bird watching but engaging in an activity outside of home uh, in nature or 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 perhaps something grounding like you know making something um, even even cookery is a meditation you know yeah. um, <clears throat> certainly that calms me down. <laughs> There was um there's a there was a play, a hospice in America for people that have been basically they're terminal with cancer and and you kind of go there for the the last few weeks or months of your life mm-hmm. sometimes you know the last few days and one of the things they get people to do is cook cookies because there's something about cookie dough and the smell of cooking that brings about a calming sense and yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and and they use it exactly that way. And a good example look, is estate agents have been tapped into this for years about cooking before somebody comes to your house. Yeah. <laughs> something homely because it's going to make you feel like you belong there and you have a place there. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really, that is, it's really special, isn't it? And there are a couple of places, you know, I work with uh, developmental delay in, in um, you know, children and there are a couple of places that I refer to where, you know, there are gar- gardening experiences set up specifically for ASD um, and their, and also cooking. You know, yeah. you recognise it in, you know, I recognise it in my clients and that they need some kind of grounding experience. Or Another one is um, is working with animals. I have yeah. a, a, you know, very, very early on in my practice, um, a boy who it took us quite a long time to realise how, do, you know, he's, he's actually... Very high functioning autistic. Um, he and it took us a while to re- recognise that that's what was going on. A because it was relatively new, twenty odd years ago, and and um, you know we had much less experience of of what it meant to be supporting somebody, just because the incidence is so much higher now of of autism and and um, all those kind of yeah. My nan, I have a fifteen year old nephew that's autistic. Yeah, and the support just you know wasn't there initially. You know, he's, <laughs> my my he's, sister would argue it's still not. <laughs> no, yeah, I think this is absolutely. But there are there are there are more resources, and um, you know, early on, his mum recognised his relationship with animals, and and working with horses in particular is really important to him. And he now actually works on on a farm, um, and. You know that's incredibly beneficial to him, but yeah. they they moved out of London in order to accommodate that. And um, but it was very difficult early on. I was just going to say this bit to to recognise what was going on with him because he was so full of colds all the time. Yeah, you know he and so so his hearing and speech seemed to be delayed because he was always full of mucus. But actually, it sort of emerged after two and a half to three years that there was something else going on for him you know and it was a bit but but that grounding in nature being outside working with horses is the key for him and I can think of other kids where you know cooking has been important or or planting you know so it's just interesting you you say that because when my nephew was about 18 months two he started going through these problems with colds mucus and Mm. he eventually like oh he might be deaf he eventually had his ad noise taken out and and all of, and had a couple of operations and stuff and then by the time he was about 5 he was then 
reluctantly diagnosed as having autism because he had speech impediment, uh, well, speech problem, he couldn't talk at all. Yeah. And, but he went through a series of physical operations. Um, yeah. I mean, and to be fair, there is a problem with uh, trying to diagnose autism when children are young because the brain has to develop to a certain level before you realise that, oh, actually, they might be autistic. Um, yeah. But, but all of these... Fi- lots of things. It is, yeah, it is. And, and that, that's what makes it difficult sometimes. But it was just interesting that you were saying that um, about the, um, the colds, the infections, you know, not speaking, yeah. can't hear properly. Oh, so it must be this, this, and this. And then three or four years later, oh, it's, it's autistic. And it also took me um, a while to recognise you know, to get to know him. So he would come into my space, which was the same. I was always working from the same practice room and he would come into that space and it took me and his mum time to recognise that he was coming into that space and he would check certain things in the space. So it took me two or three appointments for for me to realise that he would walk up to my laptop and check that the lights were on, on the little keys that I yeah. used for my program. And then he would, once he checked the room, he would then ask me to lift him up onto the small table under the window so that he could look out of the window and read the numbers on tops of the buses that would park at the yeah. bus stop outside. <laughs> and it was this ritualistic behaviour and the way you know we're trained as homeopaths to observe that after a while made me realise ritual was important to him in engaging in a space. And once he knew that that space was the same space, he could then begin to move into communicating in a different way. It was very interesting. Another instance um, of a child who was extremely hyperactive. I mean, as soon as he engaged in or was overstimulated by the external environment, it could be school, it could be walking onto the pavement outside the practice space, you know, the buses, cars, ambulances, whatever, he would suddenly, you know, really kind of become quite uncontrollable. But interestingly, when he was in the practice space, and it was a relatively quiet room, and the box of toys was there in the corner, he got out the toys, and I think they were Playmobil Farm, and some pencils were there. And he's the only child to date who created a very, very ordered space of the little pencils with the edges of the fields and then he put certain animals in the pens and he really, in a very ordered way, created this controlled environment. And I I was really fascinated by his capacity to do that, to become still enough in his mind to do that and to create order, which he absolutely couldn't do yeah. outside of, you know, that kind of space. But it was fascinating journey into seeing what creates or is a trigger for hyperactive behaviour. It's it is it is it's such complex sort of um, conversation, and I am fascinated. I had I've had two Reiki healers on the podcast, and one of the things they were fascinated with is the connection between people who were depressed and how being working with animals, being in nature, all of those things with exercise over a period of time, not fixes, but seems to alleviate a lot of the symptoms. And they were wondering if it was some sort of just natural reset where you're so disconnected by what's going on in the earth that 
um, you you need yeah. to have that reset just by connecting to the earth. Which is is that why people are drawn to the woods or to the ponds or to the beach? Is is that why Absolutely. we love it so much? <clears throat> why well, we should all walk barefoot a bit more? Yep, <laughs> on the grass. I, I did that this morning. You know. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I haven't majorly got into that. Um, I do like walking barefoot, um, but uh, I haven't definitely gone out of the house and grounded. <laughs> to be honest with you, it's partly just the laziness of putting on socks when I, I'm letting the dog out. In the morning. Um, and I do, I, it's not that I think it's overrated. I think it's like many things, people try to use it as a compensation when you should maybe try actually going for a walk. You should actually mm. maybe try sitting by the river or going to the, the seaside or, you know, it's... Whereas a lot of these things, you know, like um, the one that popped into my head is when blueberries first became a thing. and <laughs> They never uh, used to be a thing, did No, they? <laughs> but suddenly they're a superfood and an antidoxin and all of that. Yeah, but not in a, not in a muffin. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it, and it doesn't matter if you eat loads of them, if you're eating X, Y and Z as well. It's it's kind of like, well, I'll balance it by I'll do this and then I, don't, then I can do that. And it's like, no, you have to stop the crap full stop. And just have a healthy diet. And yeah, blue- one of my favourites, my absolute favourites, <laughs> definitely speaking to the converted. One of my favourites is, um, oh yeah, I'm on a detox, and I'm like, oh great, what are you doing? Uh, Stop drinking for January. I'm like, uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's just yeah. It's, it's like yeah, sure, a little bit of a detox. I mean, your body's just going to relax a bit. You know, the liver might be a little less stressed as a result, but you're not actually doing anything. No. Unless you make a conscious decision to to encourage, you know, cleansing, detox. I, I work with a superfood cleanse and I do group cleanses two or three times a year. And it's just such a great space. What you know, what happens when you genuinely have a big cleanup and, and the decisions that people go on to make about their lives, um is is fascinating. Absolutely yeah. fascinating. And as powerful as as some of our homeopathic remedies, you know, it's like, wow, okay, I'm, I'm back to being me again, or, or I'm a new me, you know, making new and intelligent decisions about my life going forward. Do you know, that's a good segue to the menopause, really, um, which is why you and I originally <laughs> were talking. Yes, yeah, through my friend Claire. <laughs> yes, and thank you to Claire. Thank uh, you to Claire Grierson, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, because that's actually something that um i've done a, a couple of podcasts before with the menopause and one of the things that like i said to you when you and i were originally talking is i found it completely off the charts how little is known how little women talk about it without trying to t- generalize or put everybody in the same pocket mm-hmm. um because it's a change that's going to happen regardless but if you're not aware of why or how or the the different ways it can affect people, it, you're, you're not going to be prepared for what may happen for you. Absolutely. And, and I think at the stat is at any one time, I think it's 13 million women in the UK are going through menopause. We're certainly all going to go through it. And also, you know, when I went through menopause myself even though it's only seven and a half years ago we still didn't have or we didn't have the understanding that we have now which makes you 
consider what we're going to have in you know another seven years time and when I trained as a homeopath so so I graduated in 2000 I actually don't think menopause was mentioned it it wasn't we, we trained in hormonal change, we trained in pregnancy, childbirth, you know, we trained in in supporting elderly, uh, but we did not specifically have lessons in menopause. So, so menopause is more of an issue, without doubt, than it was, and, and is being talked about much more. So we will talk to our mother's generation, and we will talk about you know, we, we could learn about hot flushes and, and flooding and, yeah. you know, lots of symptoms, but it is much more of an issue. Our hormones are more distorted. And, and when I first start to teach about it, you know, in a, in a workshop or on a course, I'll often use um, what I call the 20th, 21st century toxic timeline to show why menopause is much more of an issue which brings us back sort of full circle to the liver and detox and all the things that we need to let go of at menopause well because yeah when i first had a conversation with a lady called carola who is actually in australia and was going was going through the menopause and she won't mind me talking about this because it's on the podcast but she she literally said herself she was having a mental breakdown but didn't realize why and she nearly got divorced. Um, she she was at one point sort of starting to think, I'm getting suicidal. And mm-hmm. when she went to the doctor, she was just like, yeah, you pro- you're probably going through the, me- the menopause. And and that was it. That, that, that was, I mean, luckily she was able to, she was a therapist herself and was then able to sort of go through all of her network and find ways to cope and people to speak mm-hmm. to. Um, but when she initially tried to, find out what was going on and why and what you can do about it she realized how little is known and one of the things we talked about at the time is there's this kind of myth about the way that people communicate and there's this idea that men don't talk and that women do well women don't talk about things that are close to them but men will And the best example I can give of this is when there was a drug that came out called Viagra for men's impotence, there was this idea that men have to be honest about it. No, men went out and bought it in their truckloads. And every bloke I knew was just like, if this is going to give me an erection for longer, where do I buy it? There was no, they didn't care whether they had impotence or not. They were just like, I get to be horny for longer. Where do I sign up? And that, that was what's different is how we communicate. Because a, a bloke, yeah, I, j- just to give you an example, like when, when people, like when men talk about like testicular cancer and all of this, men will joke about the fact, well, I scratch my nuts all the time. And I could be with any of my mates, we could be talking, and you know, I'm not going to mention name names, but one of them was just telling me recently, could he had an issue in the groin? But he was slipping that into a conversation in the middle of another conversation. We're just quite blasé about how we talk about things that are what we don't like talking about as being vulnerable and our mental health and how that may, might be affecting us if we feel like we're failing. But if it's just like, well, I've got to check for lumps, how often do you guys do it? Do you know what I mean? And then, oh, by the way, are we having kebabs tonight or are we going for an Indian? It will be tied in to all of those conversations. 
you know, a, a good person to look at for how men communicate is Mickey Flanagan. Because he talks about his wife says to him when he goes to the pub, oh, say hello to your mates, ask them how they are. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> We're not, you know, like, you know, you leave the house and you're like, tell them I said hi. Never going to tell them we said hi. It's just, it's not how we communicate to each other. But I think it's, it's easy to talk in generalisations though, isn't it? Because I would say there's many, many times where women will, t- will talk about some of the things that you've mentioned. And there is a difference between prowess and like you said, vulnerability. I think so many things about the menopausal symptoms indicate a lack, you know, so a lack of you know your sexuality is declining um and women aren't offered something to boost their libido for instance you know yeah. so so these are, there is a very different there are different nuances i think about women's health and how women are traditionally yeah. supported or not you know so often you go to the doctor and and what you're you know it's a feedback loop it's like i've got these problems um you know say heavy periods and it's like you, you sort of end up leaving knowing that you've got these problems because you're a woman and it's and it doesn't that doesn't really solve anything last week i had a message from yeah obviously he's a good friend he's like you wouldn't believe it i've just been to the gps and had a prostate exam it was bloody Mm. awful and it was on a group message chat it was on a group message chat and we all then made fun of him (laughs) yeah i mean and it's just like it was just a random checkup but but we're like that's how we deal with these things we we don't Whereas, like you say, that there's this side with, and it's it's only from what's been told to me, so I could be very wrong, and I don't want this to come across as too clumsy, but there seems to be a thing when it comes to things like the menopause, where I don't know if it's just because GPs don't have enough experience in all of the ways that it can affect a woman, or that women just are not talking themselves about it. And I remember when I did the first sort of podcast on the menopause i was just like right i'm going to send a message to every woman i know in my messenger but they didn't ask for this and i was surprised that i had that many i had like a hundred of women in my messenger and some people were close friends some people i barely knew but i just sent them all a polite message saying look i've just done this podcast i think it's something you should all pay attention to you know or words to that effect you know not trying to offend anybody i had two responses out of over a hundred wow. messages sent and both wow. of those responses were from women that had suffered in the menopause. All of the mm. other women. And I even, separate to that, on top of that, emailed a few people as well. Because I thought this is a really, it's probably one of the only important podcasts I'm actually going to do. And <laughs> it, Amazing. And again, no response. It, even mm. the, the, the responses I've had are only from, I can literally, I could name them, there's three. Two of them were in messages because they suffered with the menopause. And one of them was somebody that I was talking to at work and she happened to mention she was having a hot flush. And I just, luckily, we've known each other a long time. And I just said, look, I, I did a podcast on the menopause. You might find it helpful. Sent her a link for it. And she came back. She goes, actually, that was really helpful. Thank you. And confirmed many of the, like, the, emotion, the emotions that she was going through in the self-doubt. And I think that's something that is really misunderstood is that there's this whilst you're going through this like i suppose it's like what's it's it's a biological chemical change that i don't know if that's the right way to word it but it will it can bring a level of anxiety and self-doubt that can make you feel like you are literally going crazy a hundred percent i think you know like i said 
you know, 20 years ago, we weren't being taught about menopause because we didn't have, we just didn't have the knowledge of, of the kind of changes that women are going through. The changes that women are going through have advanced fast and are advancing. And, you know, it's really only three or four years ago uh, when uh, I first met Meg Matthews, who started to do a lot of work, you know, taking the conversation about menopause. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen some of that podcast. Places, it's, it's on your website. You know, yeah, like the BBC or, or John Lewis. You know, she's talked to a lot of different places. Um, that You know, it actually came out. There's 34 symptoms associated with menopause. And when you look at that list, to come back to what we were saying earlier, you know, they cover the physical, the general, the mental, emotional. And I can get women coming into my practice who for the first time in their life, and they're, you know, and they're often professional careers you know they have they have a, a you know they've they, they may have children they may not but they're, they're very much professional women um who who for the first time are experiencing a crisis of confidence yeah like you say self-doubt anxiety that these emotions unbelievably have come up for them for the first time in their late 40s or their early 50s and that and that you know when we look at for instance the chinese medicine system the deep emotions, the emotions of depression, are are housed in the liver because we yeah. associate. You know, I'm not a Chinese medicine practitioner, but there are a lot of really useful references. There is, and yeah, they're really really helpful. So when you understand that the deeper emotions are housed in the liver, you're like, well, I need to do a liver detox. Then I need to let go. I need to clear. I need to cleanse. And why might we need to do that at menopause? Because all these excess hormones that we're creating you know so the thyroid stimulating hormone the follicle stimulating hormone to just do another period to keep the thyroid uh, maintained and in balance for instance you know those excess hormones that we've generated then need to be broken down by the liver so the liver suddenly got a lot more tasks to do if you like yeah you know and we still need those hormones beyond menopause we just don't need so much of them so other organs start to take over the role of producing them and if those organs are already occupied doing something uh, like dealing with stress then then i'm thinking of the adrenal glands here and they're taking over the role of producing the estrogen and the ovaries are stopping then if we're going through stress at work you know if we've got the stress of looking after elderly parents or kids going through um their a levels and gcses etc or university entrance those kind of things suddenly you realise you've got a lot on your plate and you are dealing with a lot more stress and then the adrenal glands have got to also do oestrogen for the first time um, or fully, then it's it's like it's too much. And guess what you have? You have surges of anxiety and it's, it's partly supporting kidneys, adrenals and ovaries to become more robust and supporting the liver to let go and detox, you know, and that and that's why I, I really like things like the ten day cleanse, um, taking time out to look after yourself, to restore. You know, it's really mm. important. There is because there's a the body is designed to function in a certain way, and it requires a level of balance. We are so detached from these days. There's an interesting book. I finished li- uh, listening to recently called "Why We Eat Too Much," and there's <laughs> a, yes, yeah, because it says it's why we eat, and then in brackets, too much. And 
there's another one I'm listening to at the moment, which isn't actually what you'd think it is from the title, but it's called Sex at Dawn. And it's, it's, it's actually, to, the, both of them are really to do with human evolution, although one is very food-based mm. and the other one is very behaviour-based. But one of the things they talk about both in both books, and I found this with a lot of books over the years, is how detached we are from our origins. Because people don't realise it's only something like about 10,000 years ago that we actually started to become, we started to settle and actually started to farm. And 10,000 years ago seems like a long time, but the, the, the basics of the human yeah. brain, the lymphatic system and all of that, are about 2 million years old. And although Homo sapiens are only about 250,000 years old, the programming hasn't changed. And so we think, well, 10,000 years, yeah, but we picked up an operating system from all of the other Homo, um, sort of homo sapiens and from that family tree. The operating system didn't change, just like you might not have saber-toothed tigers, but the way that they function and the way they operate is the same as today's modern cats. They haven't yeah. changed. And we haven't changed as an operating system. And, and what that means for people is the, the, bio um, the biochemistry in your body hasn't changed. And the way that your body gives instructions to, you know, like through the adrenal glands, through your thyroid, through your liver, through your kidneys, um, all of that hasn't changed. But we changed in our habits and our rituals when we started farming. And up until then, you know, if, if, if people listen to how we used to live, and you still see it in sort of like very remote societies, how close family it was, so that as you went through changes, both men and women, but particularly for women, is menopause would typically not always come at the end of a cycle of having children. But they were also in communities where everybody looked after children regardless of their age. Yeah, we also could only eat seasonal foods. You never stayed in one place very long. It's so everything was a cycle, and it would be interesting if there was ever a way, like if somebody invented a time machine, to see how these things affected as much forever, you know, like then how they handled those things without any knowledge, without any medicine, by the standards that we today would call knowledge in medicine. Yeah, and I think I think there's lots, lots and lots of things in there. I mean, I totally agree with you about, you know, the way that our body deals with stress. You know, is exactly mm. the same as if there was a saber tooth type figure there. Yeah. You know, and it might be your boss, or it might be you know having too many things you know on your plate to do. I think what's what's interesting about the topic of menopause is that we are one of the very, very few species on the planet who actually have menopause most most like really and i mean most um are fertile until the end of their lives whereas we pause all that and then live for a period of time and even if we go back or or we look at other cultures where the average age for menopause for instance in eastern mediterranean or or um Thailand, when we look, there's a couple of big studies show that the average age is is 45 and not and not 50, 51 as it is here, or, or even higher. Interestingly, in Roman Catholic countries, you know, which might tell you that you know they don't use so much in the way of contraceptive. Is there a conversation around for us around um, synthetic hormones that we 
taken that are in the water yeah. that are affecting male and female sexuality? I mean, that's just one aspect of it. Um, is there an aspect of, you know, women in um, in Thailand and Eastern Mediterranean doing harder physical work um, and or having less available nutrition? You know, do we have a later menopause? Because, you know, there aren't really the studies around this. No. You know, so do we have a later menopause because there is more food available to us and that food is not as highly nutritious? So we graze through macronutrients like pizza and pasta in order to get our nutrients. And yeah. that creates stresses on the body that then mean that menopause is more of a deal, you know, because when you get on to superfoods or when you look at vegans um, or when you look at... Um, people who eat a lot of raw food, they have less problems at menopause. So so you start to see trends like that and you've got to look at the food that we eat as well as our behaviour. And that's what I mean about coming back to this holistic place of when you look at all those 34 symptoms associated with menopause, you know, one of, one of them, for instance, is allergies and rashes. Women are much, much more likely to do odd rashes and allergies that they've never done before. And when I look at those 34 symptoms, I'm like, well, I did all of those to some degree or another, you know, and were, were all those 34 recognised as symptoms back when, you know, my mum and my granny went through menopause? No, they weren't. And so we've got to look at the 21st century 20th century yeah. toxic timeline and if you go to nomadic herbs women who are the closest to our pre yeah. our pre-agricultural days they don't even have men i mean they they their period stop but they don't have the symptoms that we have you know so so with two conversations there there's there's toxicity and what we do about clearing it and then there's why do we have menopause why do whales have menopause why do a couple of other fish species have menopause? And the, the role that we see in the whales is that the older adult whales teach, interestingly, the younger males about the best feeding grounds, about the best places to go and ensure the longevity, basically, of the pod. You know, so, so there's something, a conversation growing from my perspective which i love to work with which is is what are we going to do post-menopause what are we going to give back to human society what can we give back to the species now that we're not engaged with breeding <laughs> which but takes up a lot of energy <laughs> it does but this is it's a really important thing that i don't think i don't think people understand either because we're talking about evolution there was something that became an evolutionary advantage for human women to have a menopause or for their periods to stop if we're one of the only few species that do it it was because it was advantageous to our survival and we don't understand why that is and if you you don't understand why it is well then you can't possibly understand the purpose it served yeah so i think there's a massive like dawning of a conversation about about possibility there for you know coming into fruition um because we have got a lot of issues we have got rather a lot of problems at the moment (laughs) that need to be solved you know and and so my a lot of women might say oh my you know my memory's really affected well memory is again is the provenance of the liver you know, yeah. if the if the liver is if we cleanse the liver, then the memory improves. The fog the fog lifts. Um, 
and I'm really into flower essences as well. I work a lot with the Australian yeah. bush flower essences. And so so we could pop in some bush flower essences for memory. You know, there's there's home certainly homeopathic remedies, but there is also having a bit of a clean up. Um, and then the memory improves people. And when the memory improves, then you can make a plan for the future because you can see what was in the past. You can see the mistakes. You can see the triumphs and you can look forward into the future and say, well, if we put this in place, then we will ensure a better outcome. We've only advanced because we're able to do that. Yeah. But we don't. One of the things I think one of the things about the pace at which human have evolved is people maybe people realize that if you were to literally do a timeline of humans that bell curve really just starts to go from re- very very minute slope it, it like it barely registers and then it shoots up like a rocket in the last mm-hmm. 200 years mm-hmm. you know and then if you add the 90s and the age of the internet it it it's just upright and it's just it's like incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Where do we see it go next? You know, one of my questions, so I have a background in permaculture and I was continually asking my my tutor, you know, because everything about it is aligning stuff in nature so that you come into abundance in the garden without too much effort. Yes. And really, you know, it's kind of where we are as a species. And and, um, and it, even though we have a lot of poverty, we're nevertheless, we have abundance of connectivity there's so many areas in which we could consider that we have abundance compared to the past and there are obviously lots of areas where we're lacking that you know we might say well we don't have abundance of connection with nature we need to achieve some balance here but what happens when there's too much abundance you know it's like nature implodes actually it rots down in the middle and the fungus grows out you know so we're like okay where are we in the cycle of things then you know because it's interesting you say that there was somebody i was listening to it would have been one of those books i was listening to um and they were talking about the fact if you when they've done studies of tribes that don't have much connection with humans modern humans or anything like they Mm. don't have a concept of poverty either because wow that's well, amazing <laughs> well because ev- everything is shared because it is is no you know if you hunt and are successful and and your counterpart hunted and wasn't successful you will just eat together because otherwise how do you survive but because they share everything that there's no concept of poverty because our concept of poverty is and of course they're nomadic they're typically nomadic so again they're just constantly using resources seasonal resources within their environment that is so fascinating i was just reminded of the scene in, in uh, gavin gavin and stacy where they don't share the lamb curry yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no but that, that's the reality isn't it and if you look at what we base poverty on mm-hmm. we've we've actually evolved to a point where we've become aware that people have less than us because we've moved away from a tribal system where it was frowned upon to not share everything so everybody had everything equally you know, in terms of what you needed. Whereas now, poverty is, well, that person's a billionaire and I only can get by on minimum wage, okay? Mm-hmm. That that person has got a bigger house than me. That person's got a better car than me. That person has nicer holidays than me. And you're just like, so what, what are we defining as poverty compared to, like, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, if we're going to understand, even begin to understand any of this, 
Once upon a time, there was no concept of poverty. I find that amazing and really, really fascinating. I do think the nuclear family's got odd to us. It, it has. Well, farming, once, once we started farming, we then had to own land. You were then, if you, you know, the, the Bible says it best, you reap what you sow. And if you had a bad harvest, you starved. Whereas yeah. with nomadic people, well, you just moved on to the next place. You move so you never use all of those resources. And going back to what you were saying with like with the liver and things like that, everything was given a chance to regrow, to, to sort of re, be re, revitalised. And you never overused anything. I had a fascinating insight um, a few years ago now. Uh, we, as a family, reconnected with part of the family um, who live in South West Australia. And um, basically four... four uh, brothers and one of them well so, so they all fought in the first world war but after the first world war one of them got his army pension and moved um, around I think 1926 to southwest Australia and was sold a parcel of land in southwest Australia and they were sold it as dairy land but when they got out there it was it was the Cowrie forests it was these enormous trees and, and nobody had I know nobody had any concept that the value of the land, the carbon footprint of the land, was locked up in the trees. So you chop the trees down and ship them off to build, you know, houses somewhere else, and suddenly there is no nutrition in the land, you know, because yeah. it's rotting down in the scheme of things in the forest. So nobody knew that was about to happen. But more to the point, initially when you first arrived, you know, you were literally given, I think, an axe and maybe a tent for your family. So they went out there as a six-person family because by then they had four children. When you look into the records of the region, those it's so fascinating. So Perth was set up as a it wasn't set up as a penal colony initially. So the, the penal colonies were the other side, the east coast Australia, west coast Australia was the Swan Swan River colony. It was called was set up by by pioneers. Um, and they were continually writing to the British government saying, you've got to send us some prisoners, basically, to help us because, you know, they've got that the other side of Australia. And and you're trying to force us to do that without any workforce. We can't do this. We can't make it happen. And uh, eventually they were sent um, a, a, a prison ship and they built their prison. The first thing they did was build themselves a prison at Fremantle. I mean, it's a fascinating it's, history. Yeah. And then a little bit further down the line, they started to settle further south. And um, and when you look into the records, the families then further south were like, send us support because we can't we can't do this. And the families that survived were people like my great uncle's family who had six and you know people to farm the land. And the people that didn't survive, who'd gone out there as husband and wife, you know, just had just didn't have a chance. And this is a story that's kind of yet to be properly told in any way or made into the next you know, feature film. But it's a it's a really interesting um, history, you know, about about creating um, a new colony requires the, the sharing that you're talking about, yeah. requires working together as a team. And you cannot do it any other way. No, we're not designed, as in my opinion, at least there's no evidence that suggests we're designed as a species to be as competitive as we've become. Mm. And, you know, yeah. and I think competition is a really interesting, I mean, I have a kind of, <laughs> I guess it's my own theory on that, but, but, you know, the, the role of estrogen is to 
make us as women fertile. You know, it brings us to fertility. It isn't necessarily the initiator for a project. You know, that is a little bit more testosterone driven. That I want that over there. Therefore, I've got to, I've, I've got to be sort of strong enough and have enough stamina to to do that thing. And then progesterone, we actually have progesterone receptor sites in the brain, and they. So if we if we have a lot of brain fog, we generally need to clear those because progesterone is much more what I call the mothering hormone. And progesterone is about having lean muscle. It's about being strong enough to pick your babies up. It's what holds the womb um, strong and holds the baby during pregnancy. So it literally, you know, it looks after the muscles of the body. Um, it's not that there isn't a role for the other hormones in the muscles of the body, but it is it has a lot of integrity around that. And it is about having, like I said earlier, the plan. When it comes to estrogen, estrogen's role is to bring us to fertility. It's It, it initiates a new action. And it has actually a competitive edge because estrogen is what keeps us competing for the male, for yeah. the sperm, basically. And and we, we can't get pregnant without the right balance. But estrogen is a driver and we are estrogen dominant as a society because of things like um, pesticides petrochemicals things in our environment that have advanced since the 1970s which mean that we they 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 transposed to estrogen-like substances in the body which means that we're all prone to more estrogen than we should have for men, that's detrimental in a very physical way. And for women, it's detrimental in both a physical way. And, and I think it, it creates this competitiveness where we, we unnecessarily compete against each other. So I think it's huge. I think it's, there's two things. That there's one is if, if you look into the problems with omega-6, when we're yes. actually an, yeah. an omega-3 type species mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and grains all of our fats, you know, our oils have a lot of high omega-6 in for good. It's a preservative uh, or used as a preservative. Yeah, not all of them. It's about getting the right balance. Balance, I mean, hemp, again. Hemp yeah. seed oil is perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But it's it, the right it's, balance. You know, but also predominantly, if you, if you look at things that you could argue from the beginning of time we're supposed to eat, which yeah. isn't the same as where we are today, but the foods that we're supposed to eat like the lean meats, salmon and stuff like that, were high in omega-3. They were high in omega-3 for a reason. Um, salads, summer foods and all of that, they're high in omega-3s. Um, we're not, there's a balance to how we're supposed to eat omega-3 and how we're supposed to meet omega-6 because omega-6 blocks out omega-3. So if you have mm. a diet high in omega-6, you're not going to be getting omega-3 no matter how many supplements you might take. Um but going back to which I think is going to be an interesting problem um, for the next couple of generations going f- towards men with the lack of testosterone. Is mm. We don't know. We're, we're living at the beginning of what that's going to be and whether that's going to be okay or going to be a catastrophe. And I yeah, think it's going to be a catastrophe because just going back to what you and I are saying and like, we, we seem to be drifting away from the menopause, but it, it's so relevant <laughs> to the, these things. The space. <laughs> well, because one of the things that people don't want to accept is where we where we came from. 
and and ultimately if you want to have the the ultimate balance and understanding of your mind your body and your place in on the planet you have to understand where where we or how we evolved to where we are today and how where we are now doesn't does not match in any way shape or form how we evolved for our best survival and that yeah, I think it's really interesting to to look at that and it maybe it brings us back to you know do do menopause of women can menopause of women have the wisdom to share can we have a society where the old woman is is allowed to or able to be part of the conversation about decision making you know does does menopause support um, a capitalist society you know i think these are massive questions that we know because really when you talk about competitiveness yeah. when you're going back to that you can't help but think about what forms the basis of our society as it is now in well, in in the west and actually what the rest of the world aspires to well competitiveness to. In, in terms of young men uh, originally would have been they would be predominantly the best hunters there'd have been a point where physically yeah. you had to catch up with experience and the 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 yeah. ultimate hunters would have been the ones with the best physical prowess and the best experience and there it kind of comes a point where you're physically great but inexperienced and then there's a point where you cross over and you have your peak years and then and it's it's no coincidence as men get older their testosterone drops and one of probably one of the reasons it drops is you're not supposed to compete with the younger better men mm. but you can pass on experience yeah absolutely and i think i think also when we talk about you know testosterone dropping it's like yeah but really at the rate that it does i think we've got problems i know yeah. we've got problems you oh, know definitely. when we look at the dropping you know the drop in fertility rates i mean it's it's insane and i you know and just coming back to menopause you know women who've experienced a lot of fertility treatment are are unfortunately going to need more support through menopause because of of the effect of that medication you know which is which is hormones in the system and i don't agree look i do agree that an awful lot about menopause is lack I don't agree that that necessarily means that we need to fill that lack with synthetic hormones. You know, my own experience and the experience of, you know, many, many women and clients is that if we do some cleansing, if we let go of toxicity in the liver, it's like I think a lot comes up for being sifted and sorted at menopause. It is the great, you know, sorting hat. (laughs) And it's like, we can make reference to jk rowling these days because i don't think we can but um apparently did you see that um publication it's just come out um that various eminent um british writers have not been selected yeah. for um for for tolkien was one written in yeah. the, tolkien yeah, exactly. was one jk rowling was another and again yeah. it's just Ian like, fleming i thought it was a really interesting list this morning i was like wow what a decision making process went on there but you know in many ways it's the sifting and sorting around menopause and that the liver needs to let go and the other organs need to be nourished and if we set the right things in place then um we i i believe we can come through net menopause but it is a challenge it is it is it is um a health plans required and an understanding of what's going on and a reappraisal and you know even for women who do have a prescription and decide to have a prescription of you know bioidentical body identicals or even traditional hrt your body does not remain the same 
during that period of time. And so that needs to be assessed, you know, and, and many times women come in with sleep and anxiety issues and they're taking body or bioidentical hormones, subtle differences in how they're made. Um, and they are still suffering something like sleep and anxiety, which shows me that we, we still need to be doing something and addressing those symptoms. And, that, and luckily we can do, this is also a, a misconception, you can do a lot alongside mainstream medicine. So if, you're, if you are taking, you know, you're listening and you are, you are down that route and you find that any of those um, hormonal additions aren't working for you in some way, you can do more natural approaches alongside there are natural alternatives and you need to be whatever you choose, listening into your body and seeing if it is the right choice for you. You know, and I'm saying that in a very open way because it may be that you're very aligned to a natural solution and you're doing all you can and yet you've still got issues. And so is there a place where actually... I'm sorry, with your particular wiring, it's like you do need to go down that mainstream route. Do you need to do it forever? You know, you will go through a second menopause when you come off that. This is also something that's not being talked about enough, is at some point we have to have that conversation. You know, we have to we have to go through menopause, whether we, we put it off for a number of years um, because we can. Um or, or, or whether we choose to go through it as in a more natural space and time for us. I say natural because it can't be natural because of all the environmental factors, you know, that contribute to the menopause symptoms. But we do the best we can. <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's how we enlarge the conversation. Yeah, exactly. So, so at the beginning, just before the pandemic, um, I gave a talk at Homes for Harringay. They they celebrated International Women's uh, Day with a talk from uh, myself, a, a BAME executive, and um, somebody talking about uh, domestic abuse. So three very different talks. And you know, after the talk, we 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 were just, but we were, all of us were inundated with questions from the women in the room, and a lot of the women. Um, that work for Haringey Council are Afro-Caribbean, Eastern Mediterranean, um, uh, Middle Eastern women, predominantly. And I was so struck by the questions that were coming from those communities and a lot of assumptions that because of a particular demographic, they couldn't take HRT or they, they thought that was the only option. And it reignited something for me which was there is a lot of work to do and we need to get the message out there, you know, through podcasts, through writing, through accessible resources, that there are some steps you can take and to take a few steps to make, you know, decisions to say, well, you know, I could be skin brushing every day and finishing my hot shower with a cold shower. I mean, all that's done is cost you, I don't know, eight pounds for a, for a dry, um, you know, natural bristle brush to do dry yeah. skin brushing. And many women would say, wow, that has really changed my hot flushes. And yeah. what a triumph, you know, for a very little bit of education. Can we add in, as you say, the right kind of essential fatty acids, some probiotics, some magnesium oil, all very low cost options with an understanding 
that my food is then more bioavailable, that by putting in the right kind of essential fatty acids, the lining to my whole digestive system will then absorb food differently. It will process fatty acids differently, which is the setting for me to produce hormones more efficiently. And it could be that through some very, very simple measures, you see change. And then you can build on that and reach for that expensive supplement if it's needed. You know, and that's where I feel my role is. And it, and I love my homeopathy and flower essences, but I do appreciate that not everybody wants to or knows they can or can afford to come and see someone for an hour to talk through everything. You know, and that, and I think there is a lot of work that we can do at a very simple level. It, it, it is, isn't it? And it's it's trying to get um, people to the table because, like you're saying, there's, there's people who say, "I'm not talking to her; she's a bit of a woo-woo quack." Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that, I hate the word woo-woo. Can we just? Read I, I love that it. One? I, I, I love it. It really annoys me, and I've got to learn to love it. Apparently, well, the, the, the reason <laughs> the reason I love it is because people will take me as to be quite straight. But I actually wrote a book on reincarnation from the perspective right. of someone who committed suicide. So on one hand, I, I do a lot of therapy around anxiety or executive coaching, and I can come across as very black or white. But then on the other hand, I wrote a book on reincarnation. And so people are just like, well, I'm not sure which peg you go in because you're a bit round, you're a bit square. <laughs> and... And I, I, I kind of, you know, and like I said, I, I do podcasts with people that are, are Reiki teachers or Reiki healers. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'll also do, a, a, I did a podcast during the week with a female bodybuilder uh, from America. And she's just like, I'm, I'm not, where do you belong? <laughs> and I just... I did look you up before chatting to you to find out. I wasn't sure. <laughs> no, exactly. And, you know, and if you look at my social media, it's all very sort of, it's all very directed at, at black and white approach to coaching on mental health and things like that obviously mm. if you talk to me on a one-to-one basis it, it's much more it's much more different than that and it's i don't some embroidery <laughs> yes yeah but i would i would argue with somebody that's like actually that might be have you tried that no well don't dismiss it then yeah, do you, do you yeah. know what I mean? and but i never i, I never get exactly into <laughs> yeah i never get into my spirituality i never talk about that in my in my like social media and stuff because it, it it's not kind of my place for want of a better term, in the marketplaces, I'm not trying to be a, like a, a a word I don't like is new age, you know. But I'm not trying to be some new age guru. No, no, no. That all I'm explaining to you generally is there is a blueprint to most things in life that can fix mm-hmm. things. What I don't want people to dismiss is what that blueprint might look for you like look like to you as an individual. And there's a difference between whether somebody goes to you, whether that's with home uh, home or um, one of your uh, 10-day detoxes, um, or whether they see you in a different setting. You know mm, what I mean? It's absolutely. Just, you know, it's, we are really complex people. As a species, we are incredibly complex, and some of us manage it much better than others. But if you're open to a conversation, how do you, right, you're then open to finding out an answer. And I find typically... The, the most answers will come from where you least expect them to and the places you're most resistant to go. I think, that, I think you know, coming back to your earlier conversation about how men talk about things, you know, I have a Facebook group about 
um, natural menopause approaches. And one the reason I set up that group in the first place, because that predates this kind of reconnection with, gosh, there's still a lot of education to do around yeah. this. Because I can get into a conversation about what it is that I do and what I'm doing. And because I have a lot of, you know, have a busy practice, uh, I tend not to be perhaps initiating conversation about what I do in the the big world. And then I, you know, I did that talk for Homes for Haringey. I thought, wow, you know, there is a lot of work to do. And uh, so so it, it... it requires thinking about where where you get that message across and how you get that message across. And I set up my Facebook group simply because all the other menopause groups I looked at on on Facebook were a moan fest. And I thought, this yeah. is absolutely not my experience of menopause. Yes, I've had each of these sort of 34 symptoms um, to one degree or another, but I am not walking around thinking or talking about how I'm going through the worst ever thing that's happened to me and and so I set up the group with a different kind of perspective and then there's another group that I'm in which is um is just jokes about menopause which is hilarious (laughs) it's great you know the person wrote to me and said look given that you are you know she probably gave me the woo-woo whatever label you just talk about she's like given where you're coming from you might not like my group and I was like I absolutely love your work, yeah. you know, but it's it's not where, again, it's not only where my energy is because um, my approach is, you know, I don't, I'm not identified by menopause. I mean, I know I'm working in it and lots of yeah. people say, oh, yeah, go to Caroline for menopause, but I don't walk around identifying myself as yeah. as like, oh, I'm going through this or <clears throat> as a result, I'm going through that, you know, and I think, you know, you are you at the end of the day yeah. um, and, um and so I think it's important that there are there is space. I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to do at the moment is just to point out to new new people in my space, if you like, um, look, there are these free resources. You know, there's some chats on YouTube, there's the Facebook group, um, and um, somewhere else where I chat freely about, oh, there's various podcasts, you know, like this. Yeah. So it's like, come and get a bite of the conversation. and And always, I think, when we're trying to, you know, make change in our lives, on, especially on the health level, it is good to implement stuff slowly to assess and evaluate that that is working for you and then move on to adding in the next thing. And, and given that menopause, you know, a lot of the symptoms and a lot of the situations that we find ourselves in are lack, you know, lack of confidence, a lack of um you know, physical resources, lack of strength might be the issue, you know, so a lack of energy, um, a lack of sleep, you know, that there is this aspect of lack about it. One of the things I often say is actually you need to be adding in this, this and this. Just start with that, add those in, assess. And women are very good at denying themselves stuff. Oh, I've got to eat less of this. I've got to do less of that in order to, you know, that we have a very negative conversation in that way and i think men are much better at taking on more you know yeah. than we are no yeah i agree that there's and i'm and, and like i said I, i'm i'm loath to kind of paint, paint different sections of society with the same brush okay but i sometimes when i'm coaching and 
especially if I'm coaching someone who's come out of a toxic relationship, and there there tends to be this martyr, and it's not it's slightly different from victim mentality, but it, it it's the justification for why they had to prolong something that they knew deep down that's not working is it it's not good for me it's it's not helping me but i'll soldier on anyway and the question is like for who 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 were who you doing it for and then will come the list of people that they were trying to protect help do whatever and at no point in time were they prepared? And it's a, it is, and I notice it often comes from a point of denial. Were they prepared to do something for themselves? Yeah, yeah. Just, and it, again, I mean, it, it, to come back to menopause, a lot of the conversation would be about carving out time for yourself. Exactly. You know, because because so many women, and I definitely was one of them, was like people pleaser, and you know, with. We're, why would you do that? What drives that? You know, and it, and um, and so you know, part of it I often say is we do a little an exercise, you know, around what is important to you in life, yes. and how would you get more of that? And how do you how do you feel when you have those things in your life? I feel better. I function better. I am a better person when I have space, time, yoga, a massage, whatever it is, just might be time playing with a, you know, a, a nephew or kid, you know, you just like, yeah. when I see my, when I see my niece and nephew, I feel great, you know? And so it's like, okay, well, how can I get more of that in my life? Because when I've had that lovely weekend, you know, seeing family, then I feel about a person in the week. I might, you know, my working week's better. Um, and so a lot of it might be that we need to recognize what creates value for us and and do a bit more of it and when we've achieved that we feel very very different whatever it is it might be time out in the park reading a book whatever it is it's like that then becomes a negotiating point you know give me that time and i will give you a better version of myself exactly that and And we save the relationship that you thought was toxic i mean it had something it has some value in there initially. Yeah, but more than that, you save yourself. Mm, yeah, you become a yeah, happier, healthier person. First, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that, that, that you know, that, that, I mean, that's somebody said that to me the other day as an analogy. You know, that there was a reason you're told to put your mask on first. Yeah, because <clears throat> it is a good analogy, and it makes you think. And I, and, and also, um, sometimes we hear things a lot, and it's only after a period of time that we turn around and look at it and go, actually, that is a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's How true. many times have we travelled? You know, we have the, put your own mops tonight before the kid, and you think, oh, my kid. Yeah. <laughs> of course I put theirs on first. I'm on my breath. <laughs> yeah. It's the holding of the breath that maybe we need to breathe more efficiently. <laughs> it is, it is. And that's probably a, a really good place to stop because um, we're running on time. Um, I would love to be able to do more of this again with you at some point, to be fair. Um, well, let's do it. We've got diaries. <laughs> we have. And, um, yeah, thank you very much for your time. Thank it's been you. appreciated. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking me to chat. Thank you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Caroline. And as you can see, we really did try to put the world to rights on many things. Please do check out the links in the description and Caroline and I have actually already booked to speak again in the next few weeks and I'll let you know. Thank you.